0: Hello and welcome to episode four of the Pocket Dojo podcast. I'm Paul Crick.
1: And I'm Arsha Singh. Thank you to everybody who's watched or listened or commented or downloaded the first episodes. In today's episode, we're going to be talking more about how inner and outer nature interweave with one another. Also, at the Broughton Sanctuary, where we'll be holding our first renewal retreat for women who lead next spring. And we'll also be looking at some uh, regenerative lenses or ways to look at the world so that we can create conditions for good things to emerge.
0: I'm sharing more about the GRACE framework and how it's important to consider the idea of resolve. Seeing as it's the festive season right around the corner, we're going to share some of our favourite bloopers we've made in recording the Pocket Dojo podcast so far. In episode two, we started to think about our inner nature, what's going on inside us at any moment, and who we bring to the table, and our outer nature, everything we do to create our lives. Asha you also touched on the fact that as outer conditions like the economy, climate change and social unrest become more difficult, we'll need to generate our inner nature as well as what we see around us. Why is this important? And how could we start doing it
1: well paul i guess you know many of us are familiar with the experience of putting an awful lot of energy and effort into changing things only to find that the results are not exactly what we wanted and then we put even more energy effort time money whatever the resources might be um into learning what worked uh, well or didn't uh, as the case may be Uh, And so that really kind of brings to mind for me that famous Einstein quote about uh, not being able to solve our problems with the same level of thinking or same quality of thinking, perhaps is better, um, that created them in the first place. So we touched last time on the fact that, you know, there are natural cycles, obviously, in, in, in the outer world, in nature, in a forest, in any kind of ecosystem. Uh, of birth growth, um, you know harvest fullness and then dying back composting in order to prepare the, con- the ground and the conditions for new life uh, you know in the next spring um, and without that cycle of composting dying back letting go however we want to you know explain that that natural phenomenon that we can all see um, the soil the ground is not able to, generate the conditions for new life so in other words it can't provide the right nutrients to new plants um, it can't hold water in the right, in the right way or you know either it doesn't it, it drains all the water away or it's the soil is completely waterlogged um, you know it can't provide food for the the next or the first uh, stages of of the food cycle whatever it might be for the organisms at that stage of the food cycle so um you know, I'm going to continue actually for a moment, if, if I may, with that metaphor of the soil, because I think it's really important. So without that cycle of composting renewal, obviously uh, the soil can't sustain new life in the new season, and particularly if the climate is changing. Uh, I think, you know, we're all quite familiar with the fact of of when a farmer grows crops, if he tries to do the same thing again and again in the same soil without, you know, providing sustenance to that soil, uh, sooner or later the crop is actually going to fail. Firstly, it will start to yield less and less, and then eventually it's going to stop yielding anything altogether. Um, I think that's a really powerful metaphor for what happens in our organisations.
0: Okay, that's all very well. But let's face it. An organisation isn't a field of crops now, is it?
1: (laughs) Of course not, but uh, I think it's probably a really useful metaphor, Paul. Um, so, you know, many organizations follow what we might call a common uh, life cycle. So they are, you know, they start, they try to expand, they grow, then they move in different, into different phases of, you know, consolidation, maturity, whatever. Even purpose-led organizations that might want to do something really differently. So there are these dynamics, let's say, in business that are considered to be good business practice. And, you know, we can understand why that might be. Uh, and at the same time, going back to what I said earlier about, you know, the, the farmer with a field that no longer is yielding what he or she wants. Um, you know, many organizations, and it's quite well documented in business literature of all kinds, uh, you know, find it really difficult, particularly the large mature ones, find it really difficult to attract and keep the talent that they really want. There's fierce competition for that, you know, particularly as AI, etc. digitalization, you know, take over more and more of what we do. Um, And, uh, you know, or, or they get to a point when they don't really innovate any longer. They don't know what that might do. So they follow this path into consolidation, acquisition, whatever. We build up, you know, very strong monopolies almost or duopolies that then have to kind of break back to doing very simple things again. We, we continue these kind of cycles. And those dynamics are really hard to change, you know, particularly the kind of financial system we have, et cetera. So, uh, you know, there comes a point when it's really difficult for organizations to create real value. Really, beyond you know return on investment for their shareholders, and I'm not for one moment saying that's not important. But you know, and going back also to the fact of uh, of these big things like climate change, etc., they're going to really impact on on the future of our organisations, in my view.
0: Yes, and as we know from our conversations with senior women leaders, people are exhausted; they're just unable to function continuously like machines. And they're looking for a healthier, more inclusive, creative and supportive environment in which to do their best work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, most people don't try to create uh, toxic cultures that happens inadvertently because we can't see the results that we're going to produce. It's not a linear kind of process from our interactions. Uh, And sadly, you know, the kind of toxic cultures that I'm sure you hear about uh, on a regular basis as well, Paul, through your work, you know, all too common. And they, to me at least, you know, rap- point to rapid decline in every sense.
0: So how could we view our life and our organisations, Asha?
1: Uh, Well, I think, you know, every context is different. And the stories we tell about a particular context, organizational, you know, situation is different depending on the, the place or the position that we occupy in it. In other words, we see things through different, you know, different from different perspectives, through our own eyes, our own filters. So the stories that we tell about them can be really different as well. Um, I think it's really important that we have some useful ways to look at those situations that can find some kind of commonality uh, between our different perspectives and different stories. So in other words, I'm going to call them a series of regenerative lenses, rather than trying to apply specific frameworks, like say, to, to contexts that are really quite complex.
0: So what are some of those lenses?
1: Well, we talked about the fact last time that, you know, an organization needs to really be like a healthy, organi- a healthy ecosystem, a natural ecosystem. Um, so the first thing that I think is really important is that we have a network, we nurture a network of really good relationships. Then, you know, if we're going to clear up what we might call the messes, uh, in, in whether that's in our organizations within our own teams, departments, whatever, or whether it's out in the world because our organization does that kind of work, uh, I think that it's going to require us all to tell radical truth. But if
0: relationships are so important, won't telling radical truth potentially upset people and actually damage trust?
1: Yeah, they might do, but I think we can all think of examples where trust really gets more damaged by not telling the truth. No. I think in order to, you know, to be able to tell the truth in such a way that it lands with those who are involved. Uh, so that we can do something about it. You know, most people are not trying to do bad things or, or whatever. Most people want to do something valuable with their work. Uh, you know, even if it's as simple as, as putting bolts or something, well, they want to do it well because they don't want to have to do it again. Um, so, you know, the fact of, of being able to to tell truth in such a way that we can do something about it and make sure a problem gets resolved, you know, where it's supposed to, not downstream somewhere where it's way too late and then it gets more difficult for everybody. I think that's a really valuable communication skill for leaders that we can learn and practice. Uh, we often talk about simplifying complexity in our organisations, uh, but actually it might be a lot more helpful to to look at and try to understand better how we create a lot of unnecessary activities, so lots of things that don't add value at the end of the day, um, you know, bureaucracy and stuckness. Uh, and also, you know, not everything that we need to do is complex. Some of it is is pretty straightforward and simple. And then there's other stuff that requires or may require, you know, complicated expertise. Uh, and that can get really quite tricky because people tend to argue and stuff. So actually, we often find that instead of trying to, you know, simplify the complexity of how we organize ourselves, etc., uh, actually, it might be a lot more useful, a lot more productive if we understood and looked at The fact that much of the complexity we need to deal with is people's responses to decisions and actions, you know, the ways in which we behave with each other, particularly when we don't agree, that create a lot of the difficulty.
0: That sounds like the Kenevin framework in action, which I know you use a lot of the time, Arsha.
1: Yeah, I do. And uh, to be honest, Paul, I use complexity approaches today depending on people's context and experience and you know, what they have an appetite for, what, what holds meaning for them. And I also only use approaches which include that really vital aspect of composting, because if we're not willing to you know, let things die back, if we're really invested in maintaining our own territory which you know is also understandable you've been working a place for a long time and you feel like things are being taken away from you but if we can't have that kind of conversation I think that that's when we get really stuck so I, I think that kind of links slightly to the next lens I would describe which I call um, zooming in and out so that we can see actually once we let go of things that no longer serve there's a much deeper natural flow to life so this habit, or let's call it a practice of zooming in and out, can really help us to identify, you know, how we're contributing to the things that we say we don't want. Then we can reframe to see what's actually possible. We might call that affordance. And where we best want to put our energy and resources in order to have the results we want. In other words, to, to find our agency, let's say.
0: Well, I guess that if we see the world through those lenses, then there's a lot of composting that will naturally happen.
1: Yeah, and a lot of hospicing too, so, you know, actually helping, actively helping things to die back. Um, I think there's a, such a massive potential and, and also clearly need, if we look around the world today, um, for healing.
0: I think we've got a whole series there. Lots of food for thought and lots to talk about.
1: Yeah, and lots of practices too.
0: One of the many reasons we chose Broughton Sanctuary as the location for our first renewal retreat for women who lead is renewal of both inner and outer nature is key to all that they do and what they offer to other people. When Asha and I visited Broughton back in October, we talked with Cameron Chapman, the general manager, about what renewal means in his work and for him personally.
1: Hello, I'm Asha Singh from the Pocket Dojo, and today I'm talking to Cameron Chapman, who is the estate manager, have I got the right title? General manager. General manager, yeah. my apologies, at the Broughton Sanctuary in Yorkshire. Um, Cameron and I are going to talk a little bit uh, about Broughton itself, um, about his role here, about how the project's come around, a little bit about the history, um, and then we'll, we'll see where the conversation wants to go now. Perfect. So why don't we start with, with a little bit about the history for anyone who doesn't know Broughton. It's yeah. my first time here, so I'd love to know also, you know, something about history and, and, and maybe a bit about how you tend to be here as well.
2: Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, so we're sitting in the green drawing room with Broughton Hall. Um, this is actually the second Broughton Hall. So the Tempest family have been here for 32 generations. Rod, uh-huh. Roger Tempest is the current custodian and um, they came over in the um Normal Conquest and William the Conqueror gifted this land to the Tempest family. Um, we're currently sitting in a estate of about three thousand acres. It was once a lot larger. Um, Fast forwarding from Norman Conquest to the Reformation of the Catholic Church. Mm. Um, Roger's one of the oldest Catholic families in the country. So that was a very difficult time, mm. quite turbulent time. Um, the original hall looks Medieval was built over the road over the eight fifty-nine. And there was a feud with Skipton Castle, for example, back then, and that was burnt down. Um, and then this was rebuilt in the fifteen hundreds. Um, there's been a lot of work to it since, you know, getting up to now. Mm-hmm. And the final additions were made in the Victorian era, mm-hmm. um, being the conservatory, which has got plants brought from all over the world, including one from the Bordeaux War. Um, so as you can tell from just, you know, a couple of minutes talking about it's it. Was like, it's on the, every every single thing Gosh, what a heritage. Yeah, it's a serious serious thing to look after. Um in more more recent times, um when Roger inherited it, he tells stories of, you know, the state of the hall. Um, this would have been, you know, Roger was seven years old, so I won't tell you how long ago it was, but it was in recent years. And um and he tells stories of it having one radiator, the roofs are all leaking, um, you know, it's gone to some real disrepair. Mm. Um, so, really, it stands to him to have restored it to its former glory and then some, you mm. know. Um, it's a living, breathing home for people that come here. And it's not, you know, it's not a museum. It would want people to live here and, and they come to stay with us. And that's what he's created.
1: It's an amazingly generous and and uh, inspiring, you know, kind of offer to people, isn't it? So it sounds like, um, you know, renewal has been a theme of the family history all the way back to I William the Conqueror. That's incredible. Yeah, came I, directly from him.
2: I completely agree. I think that the focus on renewal and transformation is, is you know, is the solar aim of business now. Mm-hmm. Um, from the well-being side of it anyway. And even that seeps into the, you know, we've got the business park as well here, and that seeps into that too. You know, we try and encourage, you know, people to get involved with our nature recovery project, people to get involved with the well-being side of the business. We've people that are on the business park come and do retreats with us, people that are volunteering on the nature recovery side. And mm-hmm. so it's it's nice to see some cohesion coming into mm-hmm. that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Renewal is one of those buzz words, isn't it? It's become really, it's like regeneration, and yeah. impact and all kinds of stuff, sustainability. Um, for you, you, know, you're, you haven't been here that long, you were telling me earlier. Mm-hmm. So how does, how does what does renewal mean for Broughton today? And how are you putting that, you just touched on some of the work that yeah. you do, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, how you're putting that into practice.
2: I think in simple terms, it means, leaving people and place better than you found them. Mm. And the way we're doing that is through mainly through two prongs, and that is, you know, I would say 75% of our business now is running retreats on the hospitality side Mm. and, um, whether that be internally running them ourselves, um, which we're doing more and more or running them, um, alongside some amazing facilitators, some of which are doing them for the first time some of which who have been doing them for many, many years, they're really well established. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think knowing that we are at home for renewal and for transformation and for whether that be personal, whether allowing someone to process grief or trauma, or even, you know, help them with addiction. Um, and I don't necessarily mean the addictions that, you know, you see every day, like alcohol, drugs and talking that, it could be an addiction to a certain behavioral pattern or mm-hmm. anything like that. And for mm-hmm. me, not having worked on the state that works in that world, mm-hmm. the opportunity to help people, you know, find that path mm-hmm. and to renewal, yeah. um, and equally work with like-minded people, you know, wanting to improve themselves, but also help others. Um. It's just not an opportunity one. Mm-hmm. Really, really,
1: it's like a dream job. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, all testament to, the, to to Roger and his family to, yeah. for bringing that around. You know? And then how does that translate, uh, Cameron, into your land management? So how you're working with the land and how you're taking inspiration. You took off some fantastic little tour this morning, you know, despite the weather. But I'm just curious, you know, also for people that have never been here in mm. particular, to understand more about, you know, how does that feed, how's it inspired by, how's it held by the work that you're doing with all and yourself?
2: I think the inspiration um, is for the next generation more than anybody else. we um, were discussing I'm a new father and uh, actually Rob has got a young daughter called Aya who Aya will you know be in Roger's shoes one day mm-hmm. and um, and one of the big things is to leave like I said mm-hmm places better, improve yeah. places, don't make them worse, don't take away, add. Mm-hmm. And so the big thing is, you know, the 350,000 trees that have been planted, um, in no small part to Roger and Kelly Pollock, who's the head of our nature recovery as well. Um, they've worked really, really hard over the last, you know, five, seven years. I think it is now to get to where we are. We're at the point now where we're going to be reintroducing, um, different species on the land. We're going to start off with beavers to create natural wetlands, mm. and then going forward, we're going to introduce large grazing mammals, um, native Lohan cattle, mm. um, hopefully maybe some, Exmoor ponies, things like that, just to increase the biodiversity of the land. Um, the improvements of those are noticeable, but the other things that we're doing is small, you know, we don't use any pesticides. We don't use any weed killers. We don't want anything going into watercourse because everything ends up in watercourse. Absolutely, and that the effect that, that has on drinking water in the UK as well, you know, it's very well known. And we think that we can sort of lead the way of now mm-hmm. and show what can be done. You know, three thousand acres is it's a large amount of land, but we need everybody to be doing it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I just have this kind of image of these these threads of. You know, regenerating and renewing the land, and and our own health, and how we take care of ourselves, and then how we're in a relationship to people, to each other, and bringing that all together in one place for me is, is really inspiring. Um, you mentioned that you're a, a new parent, mm-hmm. so um, I'm curious. You know, what has changed for you? you know, of course, willing to you know share with us here. Um. in in how you renew your own life and the fact that you become a parent, has that changed the way in which you think about land because you've worked in estate management before?
2: It it, it does, absolutely. I think that being a parent is the most life-changing thing that can happen to a person, I think. Um, And, you know, I was having these conversations whilst my other half was pregnant and um, with Roger and he would always go back to that, this that water course thing that i'm just talking about yeah. now would you want your child to be drinking that and i was that's of course i said of course i said no but then once you see this little one well, you know like, i feel like absolutely not i did not want my child to be drinking that and i want my child to be growing up in a you know around people that feel secure in themselves as well as in a land that is safe and an environment that is thriving well, so i think it all comes down to you know we're balancing everything because
1: oh. we've tipped too far one way. And... Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. Um, we touched on, on, or well, I touched on the fact that, you know, there are some of these really big words. So I just thought a little bit about renewing. Um, another one is rewilding. Yes. And then Regeneration. I'm not sure I even have those very clear in my own mind actually what they mean and perhaps more interesting about how they fit together how okay. you see those
2: um I think rewilding and I'm going to take this from a sort of regenerative farming hmm. angle rewilding we're going to have to strike a balance really I think when it comes to agriculture and nature recovery or rewilding you know we're sort of we're tossing between the two of whether we call it nature recovery or we call it rewilding. But you know, our landscape didn't look like this before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, intensive agriculture—it just didn't This look what it looked like. It wasn't a billiard table of fields, um, you know, all with with walls and cattle grids that are interfering with natural habitats movement. and natural movement. Um, at the same time, we do need to look at how we're going to responsibly farm the land and and provide enough food for, you know, to the country, the world to eat. So there is going to be a balance there, but I think that you look, or you look at what's happening with species, you know, migratory birds now are certain species are dying mm-hmm. because their migratory patterns are being messed up by the time of the year, being warmer at different times, yes. some birds are starving during their migration, mm-hmm. um, so we need to, we do need to do something because If the ecosystem fails and the farming fails anyway. So we have to look at farming locally, um, seasonally, you know, eating locally, farming seasonally, and, you know, crop rotation to ensure that we're not depleting soils, Mm. um, we want to do it organically, Mm. um, and you know, where possible we know that that's a long way to go Mm. in terms of, you know, becoming organic, Mm -hmm. organic farming, Mm. but for us, it's all about balance and. You know, we're, we're going to hopefully look to do something with a regenerative farm on the estate. Amazing. So we are really looking to strike that balance, to mm-hmm. rewild part of the estate, you know, to make it look like Britain should do. Um, I mean, um, Charlie down at Nepa estate in Sussex, we we're fortunate enough to go down and visit them and Charlie has been rewilding his estate for mm-hmm. 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite incredible to see the land almost look, you see this scrub land, and you see the animals roaming through it mm. and yes it's greener than Africa but it has more of that feel of mm. that scrubland with large mammals sort of mm. roaming and grazing yeah. and um, we hope to see something similar like that
1: mm. here. Yeah. So what are since in the time that you've been here what are the the, the real highlights for you of the amazing progress that you're making here so just your personal kind of take on that? Maybe it's hard to choose.
2: It is quite hard to choose. I would say there have been certain moments that sort of click for you when you're hosting certain retreat houses mm-hmm. and you're meeting these incredible people that have been working in this line of work for a very, very long time. And I suppose those moments no build up to accumulation of understanding. And my understanding, my journey here is. You know right at the beginning of it so i would say it's more of an accumulation of meeting different people you know learning about the land here and continuing to create a container for change that's what excites me oh i wouldn't say it's a moment
1: yeah it's a moment. So it must be every day right? yeah. <laughs> see that. yeah amazing fantastic Kevin, thank you thank you I really enjoyed that conversation with Cameron. Uh, I just find the history uh, of the place. In fact, we were sitting, if I, I remember rightly, in one of the you know grand drawing rooms with our Wellington boots on, and, and Cameron actually chastised me, I think you know gently, for for wanting to take my boots off, telling me that it's a family home that needs to be lived in, etc. But you know, jokes apart, I really find the history um, and the way that the current custodians—I love that word just in itself. And uh, the family that lived there and the people that worked there, you know, they consider themselves custodians of the place um, rather than owners or employees and and the way in which they see life and are expressing it through their work, I just find absolutely fascinating. Um, it, you know, it feels to me, Paul, like, you know, the, ro- the world really needs more places like this, doesn't it?
0: Yes, it's really inspiring. My wife, Tina and I felt that immediately when we went there early in 2022. We'll be talking a lot more about The Sanctuary in later episodes of this podcast, and I can't wait to share more about it with you.
1: So how have uh, inner and outer renewal been important in your life and work, Paul?
0: Well, I took up Aikido uh, five years ago, and when I started out, it was all about how do I get fit, How do I invest now for later in life when I'm a bit older and creaking around a bit more? And also a little bit of how do I achieve something for myself rather than trying to achieve something because someone said, oh, you need to go and do this or I need to win someone's approval and therefore by achieving it, um, that would be a mark of that. So obviously tying a black belt around your weight does have some ego attached to it. Um, anyone who says otherwise is probably telling lies. Um, so the, the change that happened was I, I got into this rhythm of training, and you know I was r- really unfit uh, and, and consequently got got into that. And the first summer school, I didn't complete the last class, uh, which is a very intense physical fitness. So I sort of swore blind that I would I would make sure next year that I absolutely would achieve that class. And as I went through the next 12 months, it became interesting because it was all about not necessarily getting fit because that was happening anyway, but as I got fitter, it was kind of like, okay, so the emphasis of this was starting to change. So from an inner perspective, I started to think about, well, it's less about the piece of clothing you wear around your waist, but who you have to become to be able to wear that. And that sort of then changed my practice, which was starting to learn to to love the process. So uh, much like recording a podcast, you know, you do you do stuff over and over and over again, and uh, you know, there's there's bloopers, and you don't always get your technique right, and there's always new lessons to learn, and then you're always striving. So from an outer point of view, it was very much how do I display a technique and make it look good, uh, but more importantly, if, from an inner perspective, it was all about how do I change my attitude to practice? So I think that's, I I mean, there's a lot more to that story um, actually leading up to it. Um, But in in essence, I actually had to change um, how I actually entered the dojo and what I was trying to do there in order to reorientate myself to actually getting to a point where, obviously last summer I was, uh, I I took my black belt test and, and succeeded now i'm in an interesting position of going okay so the next black belt the second degree black belt Hmm, what's that all about and actually that's going to require another piece of inner and outer change because the you would think it was the same thing just because you're learning some extra vocabulary of moves and techniques but actually it's not um, as i'm starting to discover so that's my story how about you
1: That's fantastic, Paul. I love that. It it really kind of mirrors some of my experience, and not least with the podcast, as you mentioned, but we'll come back to that, I think, in in other episodes. Um, So, in a sense, I think that, you know, outer and renewal has been the story of my life, uh, as I'm sure it is for many people. Um, So, I'm going to share something about, you know, how I came to do the work that I I am doing today. Um, And it's quite a circuitous route, though. Depending how I tell it, people kind of look at me like I'm nuts, but let me try (laughs) and weave that into something kind of you know fairly rational let's say at least for for today so um i trained as an engineer uh and was fascinated by far more than than the theory the black and white kind of nature of, of physics and chemistry and all that kind of stuff i was far more interested in how i could apply what i was learning to making things so for example we designed the perfect ski um as our last year you know project doing that and in fact you know we kick ourselves even today that we didn't go out to the ski companies who eventually kind of you know actually made those things and and made a fortune out of them but jokes apart i'm sure they were actually consulting with you know engineering students or whatever because it's it's not rocket science so i also got really interested in business the business topics i did a modular degree Um, down in the southwest of England in a small town that was not somewhere that I'd known before. And I also got really interested in nature while I was there. So it was my first experience. I grew up mainly in London. And while we traveled a lot, went to lots of different countries, etc. You know, it was my first experience of, of living in the countryside. I didn't have a car. So I used to, you know. hitch lifts or hitch or get lifts from my, um, you know, people I was living with or take the train or whatever. But my first experience of being really immersed in nature, uh, you know, over extended periods of time and through the seasons of the year. So I then went on to study agriculture, and in particular business management in agriculture. I was in love with a farmer and I wanted to, to, to live that life, but actually when that relationship broke up and I'd actually tried you know, to, to do some of, of that, it was a very lonely life for a woman in agriculture, at least that time, 30 odd years ago, and, and without the, the funds to have my own estate. So uh, I reflected on you know what could I do? I was interested in the environment and I went to work in, in policy making first of all for the British government. Um, at that point when you kind of think, oh, it'd be great to, to, to you know be an influence in policy um, if, if you want to do something about the environment. And then I went from there to work for a charity protecting endangered species. we were actually quite well known at the time. Um, So through those two experiences, you know, were my first time of seeing uh, and and living organisational dynamics, which quite frankly were really unhealthy. Um, And after a few years of doing that, you know, I didn't, that group of people, not not intentionally, just weren't aware of what you were creating, really. Um, As we said earlier, I went to, I I reflected for a while and thought, you know, what could I do? I wanted to be self-employed, I wanted to be independent, I wanted to be outside again, do something with my hands, do something creative. And so, you know, the, the, the logical choice, let's say, that came out of that long reflection was to become a garden designer. So I retrained um, something quite sort of unrelated, but in a sense, not. I went to live in a Tibetan monastery for a while in in the borders of the Scottish borders, which is some of the wettest parts of the UK. Um, And I was really interested in yoga and meditation. I had traveled in India um, between these different work experiences and got very interested in the spiritual nature's parts of life. I was also a musician. I did lots of creative stuff. So there's different kinds of strands beginning to, to weave themselves together, really. And then I started working as a garden designer and uh, did lots of different things. I worked with different people in the sector, etc. so that I felt comfortable and then started to, to do some really lovely work, actually. But after, I don't know, four or five years of doing this, as you can imagine, I was getting rather tired, <laughs> to say the least, and, and very chilly under the, you know, in the in the great British weather, particularly through the winter. And I thought, you know, I was coming up for sort of early 30s by then. Let me go and do, let me honour a dream that I'd always had, which was to live somewhere hot for a while and speak another language really well and, and learn a different, you know, learn about a different culture. So life conspired to take me to the south of Italy, which is a very different world. To, to Northern Europe. And I was teaching English. I had no intention of, of being there any longer than, you know, a year at max. So I wanted to settle down and have a family back in the UK. Um, but life had other plans and it threw me a series of opportunities really to um, help executive teams interact more effectively with their stakeholders. So sensibly the, you know, invitation for going in was to, to help them be more comfortable in in business English. Um, but I realized from the things that I'd done before that that wasn't really their challenge. So I put together a series of soft skills courses public speaking, motivating people, resolving conflict, etc. And to my surprise, they were really successful. And then when I moved to Milan um, some years later, I was doing the same thing and, and getting to a point of, of, I was married by then, getting to a point of thinking, you know, I'd really like to create a business that is something that's that's going to last for a long time. So various people said to me, "Why don't you look into coaching? That was becoming, you know, the new thing in people development or whatever at that time." And the more I looked into it, Paul, the more I realised that's actually what I'd always done. I just didn't have any kind of formal structure or process or you know particular set of tools or whatever to do that. So I I went back to the UK, got qualified in Oxford, and uh, not long after that. Um, Life gave me this opportunity to enter the weird and wonderful uh, world that is aerospace, which is, as you can imagine, highly political and complex and whatever, and they got me really interested in, in complexity. I wanted to help my clients navigate through those difficult things more effectively. So I went to Santa Fe, the Santa Fe Institute in uh, the USA, and got a qualification there, and I've been experimenting with different... Um, uh, approaches and tools, etc., since then. So that's sort of, a, a, in a nutshell, how I got to be doing what I am today. So that's, you know, a lot of that obviously is is outer nature. I touched on some of the elements of, of living in the, in the monastery and, you know, being close to land and nourishing my inner nature and yoga and meditation. And then my creative work as a sculptor. I love performance, the body, how we use the body to to, to learn new things. And I also really like to write. So. Those are the things that I've been doing, the practices that I've been doing that, that nourish my inner world. Without which, I don't think there's any way that I could have, uh, you know, dealt with that much change in that kind of time.
0: What a great story! You learn something every day, don't you? Even though we work closely together, I hadn't realised all that. To meet the challenges of our current times, I suggest we need leaders who are grounded, have positive resolve and intention practice acceptance and are creative in their thinking and who walk their talk by embodying the modern principles of leadership. The GRACE framework is a tool that enables anyone who leads in whatever context to do this. The R of GRACE stands for resolve. The word resolve was chosen because, as Professor David Clutterbuck of Henley Business School and the late Professor Dave Megginson note, the jury remains out on goal-setting theory. On the one hand, Latham and Locke's work advocates for it, whereas arguments against point to how the pursuit of high performance can encourage unethical behaviour. Most people would say, what you need, Paul, is a set of SMART goals. Make them specific, measurable, achievable, relevant and time-bound. However, this is problematic too, because critics point out that the SMART acronym is not consistent with empirical evidence. It doesn't consider what type of goal is set. It's not applied consistently and has redundancy in its criteria and is not being used as originally intended. It also has a risk of potentially harmful effects. Anne McKee's 1991 study found that only 25% of people are motivated by SMART goals. 25% prefer to work with an image of the desired vision 25% focused on the steps towards the goal rather than the goal itself. And actually, 25% didn't plan at all. You know what? Messy issues aren't conducive to smart goals. If they were, we would have sorted them out by now, wouldn't we? Goals are much more complex, systemic and emergent than the traditional smart or positive psychology approaches to goal setting would have us believe. Many studies on goal setting reveal that whilst the habit of making goals is strong cross-culturally, the rate of attaining those goals via small manageable changes is actually quite weak. The GRACE framework then takes a much more nuanced approach to accomplishing outcomes. The R in GRACE actually stands for RESOLVE. RESOLVE is defined as the firm determination to do something. Here's six reasons why resolve is a valuable construct. Resolve emphasizes the importance of intrinsic motivation, the drive to do something, because it's inherently rewarding rather than has some external reward attached to it. When the journey to completing our goals is propelled by intrinsic motivation, we're more likely to persist in the face of challenges and find deeper satisfaction in their pursuits. Resolve embraces autonomy, when people feel that they have a choice in their goals and their actions, actually their, most, their motivation, their intrinsic motivation, tends to be much stronger. Having greater intrinsic motivation makes accountability a tool of last resort rather than a tool of first resort. Resolve places emphasis on setting intentions and goals that enable finding enjoyment in the actual process of working towards the goal. This means valuing the journey and learning that occurs along the way, rather than fixating solely on achieving the specific outcome. This is something that elite sport has come to recognize, and it has adapted its approaches to coaching accordingly. Resolve takes account of extrinsic motivation that emphasizes the need to be mindful about the level of emphasis we place on rewards. If we overemphasize the rewards and recognition that arise from achieving a goal, it can actually undermine our intrinsic motivation and may lead to burnout or even disengagement. Resolve makes room for a willingness to reassess and modify goals as needed, based on new information, experiences or indeed changes in one's life. Whilst it's important to be committed and passionate about one's goals, becoming overly attached can lead to unnecessary stress and disappointment. Finding a balance between caring deeply about goals while also being able to let go when necessary. And lastly, resolve embraces the idea of accomplishment over achievement. Accomplishment comes from harnessing your achievement in service of others. Accomplishment uses achievement to help others believe that they too have the potential and greatness within themselves to achieve whatever they set their mind to within practical constraints. Accomplishment takes achievement and gives others permission to play big, to express themselves with emotional freedom, and to find their flow. In Aikido, we say that when our intention is clear, so is the way. Intention involves being mindful and deliberate about what you want to achieve and why. It's about setting goals that are not just ambitious but also meaningful and aligned with your personal values and interests. So there you have it, that's a short whistle-stop tour of what resolve within the GRACE framework means. If you've got a question about this or any other part of this episode, leave us a voice message by scanning the QR code on screen and we'll answer it in the next episode.
1: I'm really looking forward to exploring Grace with you in in more depth, Paul, at the Renewal Retreat. Uh, It looks and feels amazing.
0: Well, thank you. It's had a good response so far, and uh, people seem to like the practicality of it, the fact that you can actually apply something and do something with it, but it's not directive in that it says you must do this. It's about finding your own practice and reaching into your own inner nature to express that in uh, your outer world. And now we come to the part of the show that we're going to show you what happens behind the scenes here at the Pocket Dojo podcast. Arsha and I did a fantastic 30 day selfie selfie video school recently uh, with the wonderful Andy Greenhouse. Big shout, Andy. Uh, We couldn't have done this without you. One of the pearls of wisdom that Andy shared with us is to learn to love the takes. And boy, have we done some takes. So what we'd like to share with you is just a little bit of fun, a few of the best bloopers that we've managed to come up between us uh, so far. What we'll do is we'll put a link in the show notes so that you can vote on your favorite, on, on, and we'll do a virtual lucky dip, and the name drawn out of the virtual hat will receive a small gift to say thank you.
1: uh, I want to share the story of a former client of mine uh, because I think it's something that our uh, listeners, watchers, whoever's uh, many of our viewers that's what I want to say do that again please seeing us uh Seeing. <laughs> Seeing
0: as it's there. Oh, the. Oh, sorry. Let's go, shift. Yeah,
1: my earphone fell out, sorry. So.
0: Got... Oh, I didn't know it flew back in. I'm going to go again. Let me know when you're ready. Oh, great. Retreat for women who lead is is, 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 is both.
1: <laughs> so today we've talked about how inner and outer nature are so interwoven in our lives and why we need to regenerate both if we want to create conditions for good things to emerge around us
0: and we've explored the grace framework in more depth and we'll continue to do that much more in future episodes Join us for episode 5 of the Pocket Dojo podcast on Monday, January the 15th at 9am GMT, when we'll be getting to know much more about Broughton Sanctuary and we'll be considering the various essential elements of surrendering, letting go and acceptance that are so key to renewal and regeneration and to leadership practice.
1: Meanwhile, we're going to wish you a very happy, healthy, restful, uh, festive season in whatever way you choose to mark and celebrate it. We are taking a well-deserved break ourselves so that we can come back refreshed and renewed in the new year.
0: So, happy holidays. See you in the new year. See you soon. Bye for now.